I invite you at this time to take a Bible to open it to the book of Esther. We're going to read Esther chapter 2. When I find the page number, I'll pass it on to you. It's on page 410. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's provided for you. We'll be going through this book one chapter at a time. And so we began it last week. So if you weren't with us last week, you're not far behind at all. And most of last week was sort of background and just setting the stage for the main characters that we get introduced to uh, starting here in chapter 2. But hopefully you've had a chance to arrive there in Esther chapter 2, and I'll read it in its entirety. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, Well, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when the many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. <clears throat> Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shehagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials in service. It was Esther's feast. 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that will conclude our reading for today. It doesn't immediately appear to us in just going from chapter 1 to chapter 2 how much time has transpired between them, but we get a sense that there's been some gap of time because the first verse in chapter 2 says, after these things, when the king's anger had abated. But we get from reading extra-biblical history of this time period and from Herodotus himself, who's considered the father of history and gave us an account of the Persian wars against uh, the Greek empire, that very likely what we had recorded and read in chapter one was in fact a war council that marked a, a time of planning on the part of the king of the Persian empire to advance into Greece and that he himself was a part of that, and it was at that time to date one of the largest military ventures known to humanity. We read about the, the scope of the province of the Persian Empire, that it was the biggest empire at the time, and the king would have summoned people from all of the various provinces to join him in making an attempt to enter into Europe and to conquer Greece. And what we know from history is that that second invasion of the Persian Empire into Greece was about a three-year period. And initially, there was some success on the part of the Persian Empire, but eventually defeat, and they slowly got pushed back. So that now when we pick up chapter 2, we're probably three years removed from the events that are recorded in chapter 1. <clears throat> and the king has come home defeated. He's been pushed back. The greatest empire on the globe at the time has now suffered an initial defeat. And this was, in fact, the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. It didn't end immediately, but this was the beginning of the end. Uh, I asked uh, Levi this week about something. I said, are you almost done? He said, Dad, I'm really close to almost done. <laughs> said, okay, that's kind of where we are here. They're really close to the end coming, which will eventually, within 100 years, come from Alexander the Great, and the entire empire will be defeated. But there's already beginning to be kinks in the armor. There's cracks in the empire. They cannot do everything that it seems and appears that they're capable of doing. And therefore, as the king is discouraged and depressed, as it seems like this might be the beginning of the end, what his officers tell him to do is say, you know what, maybe you just need a new queen. You're down in your luck, you're depressed, things aren't going well, maybe we can find other ways to make you happy. 
And we have in part because those of us who have been blessed to be raised in church, we kind of get Sunday school versions of stories and then we read more in our adult life and keep on reading and realize, I don't remember this in Sunday school per se when, when part of this story was taught, but this is not a beauty pageant that's being described. This is like the worst version of The Bachelor on HBO that's being described. That's what we're reading. It's a pagan king who's depressed. And all of his leaders are saying, let's distract you with this escapade. And so now he's not summoning uh, people to join from all the provinces to be in a military campaign. He's gathering together women from all over to try and cheer him up. And so we said last time that as we're reading this book and we're, we, we see the events that take place in it, we realize that we're, we're in the capital city of a pagan empire. Those who are in charge are not people who are themselves praying to God or desiring to honor God. The wise men that are presented are not people who are consulting the scriptures and saying, here's a way to honor God. And in fact, God himself is never directly referred to in the entire book. We are not in Jerusalem. We are not by the temple. We are in the capital of this pagan culture. And so, so much of what we read reflects that reality, that most of the people within it have no concern or regard for who God is and what it is that God desires. And they make decisions uh, just according to their own desires, their own power, their own will. And that's true here of the king. We as believers still wrestle with that and say, wait a minute, but we sing and we believe that God is sovereign over the whole world. He is the one who made everyone. He's the one who knows everyone. And so why is it that there are so many, and in fact the majority of situations in the world, that people live on a regular basis with no reference to God? No prayers to him, no desire to honor him, no desire to worship him. And they simply respond in the capacity of their will and power as they're able how is it that people who don't know God or care about God amass the type of power that the Persian Empire has amassed? This level of military strength and uh, geographic reach to be in the hands of someone who does not know and serve God. Well, the Bible itself does not avoid that conundrum. It doesn't uh, sugarcoat it in any way. It presents it as a reality. And it records for us, particularly here in this book, what that looks like and what that means on a, on a, for the citizens of the country without in any way trying uh, to sanitize what takes place. It reveals the heart of paganism, the heart of someone who has no reference for God and only a reference for his own power. And in part, because the book also does not have any direct references for God, we don't get a ton of theological commentary in the book itself. We're helped so many times within the Bible that after something is recorded, then someone tells us and gives us a clue for how we should interpret it and how we should make sense of it and what was right and what was wrong in it. But as the book unfolds, we don't get a lot of commentary throughout the book of what took place. We simply get the faithful recording of the events. And so here at the beginning of the end, part of what happens is now the search for a new queen. And that's how this has been set up for us. A new queen needs to be found. And then finally, we're introduced to someone who could possibly be that person. 
People have been summoned from all over. But we, we learn about someone named Esther. She's the only person in the whole book that has two names. Her original birth name, given name, was Hadassah. And we don't know the circumstances for how this happened, but both her mother and father at some point have died. And so she was an orphan. And it was a cousin, a relative of her parents named Mordecai who took her under his care. He chose to be a father to her when she didn't have a father. And so we, we read that and we can consider it a noble thing. But then as we look at how the events unfold, we just we want to ask questions that we won't actually ever get answers to in this. But we realize this is a very different story than maybe what we'd read if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, who Daniel's story also takes place in the heart of a pagan empire, the Babylonian Empire. And he is a Jew in the middle of that empire, stands up for who he is and what his identity is. And even though they try to change his identity and they try to change his name, he says, no, I, I still am going to honor God here. I'm not going to eat the food that's forbidden for me. And I'm going to show you that by honoring God, I can still serve you adequately in this kingdom. For Esther, uh, the, the advice that comes to her from Mordecai is to conceal her identity, to not reveal initially who she is, so that she isn't singled out as different from anyone else. And that phrase is repeated twice, that Mordecai told her not to reveal who she was. And so in that was not only then a different name in Esther, but then throughout is what mostly the book of Esther is, is a series of feasts that take place. We have every expectation that she in no way distinguished herself in any of those feasts or in any of the activity as, that would have given her away as having a Jewish background. So here we might ask questions and wonder why, but it doesn't immediately answer for us. The story continues, and we don't get to the end of the story today. Sorry. And so they, they, some of those things just are left unanswered. But it gives us a sense of the environment that they're in. That here he is raising this girl who's already experienced the brokenness of this world in several ways. Not just a general sense that there's an evil emperor and they, they don't have any representation in government or any rights um, in, a, in an official capacity, but even in a personal way. She's experienced tragedy. You couldn't go up to her and say, don't, don't you believe if you just do what God tells you to do, you know, life's going to work out great? She said, what do you mean? No, I don't believe that. I haven't seen that. I know what it's like that even if you are a part of God's covenant people, there's real pain that happens. There's real hurt that happens. Sometimes you live under the rule of someone who doesn't know God. Sometimes you lose people in your life that you never thought you would lose and that you could never imagine what life would look like without. Whatever faith she had, though it's not described for us at this point, we know for sure it wasn't a superficial faith. It wasn't the kind of, well, if I just do some things for God, God will do some things for me, and so God's just sort of this sideways way of me getting what I want. Now, that option was just off the table because life already wasn't what she would have want or desired for herself in it. And so Mordecai tells her to conceal her identity. We see that there is, in, in ways we don't fully understand or know, but there is favor that is brought by the eunuch who is responsible for everyone to say this is someone special. And then we see that the king himself quickly chooses her 
to be the next queen. But there again, we would, we would at one part want to congratulate her and say, hey, you're the queen. But there's a sort of a, an uncomfortableness that we should also have to say, this is a horrible way to become queen. She's not valued for her mind. She's not valued for her heart. She's not valued for her spirit and for her faith. And so it's this sort of a tension that we should have in reading it in the adult version as we go through the chapter to say, I don't know where this is going to end. Wow, it is an amazing thing that she has been the person who has been chosen to be the queen, but this has happened in part by the concealing of her identity, not in the fullness of her identity, her commitments, and her priorities. And here again, the Bible doesn't avoid this. What we sometimes look at in the world and wonder, how could these things be? How could this take place? This doesn't make sense that this person would have gone through this or been treated this way. The Bible invites us to consider those questions, to wrestle with them. It tells us very, very early on that the world is broken, that the world God made and that everything he made in it was good, but it is not now consistently good in the way that he made it. And that's the quote on the back of your handout. The world is fractured. It is not what it was meant to be or what it one day shall be. This is Derek Thomas uh, commenting on Romans chapter 8, where in Romans chapter 8 it says, all of creation has been subjected to futility. And here's just his comment on it, that the world is fractured. It is not what it was meant to be and it is not what it one day shall be. And we don't have to be very old before we learn and experience and realize that. That whether through frustration or pain or disease or death, we recognize that we are in a broken and a fallen world. And it doesn't reflect the goodness that was originally designed, and it doesn't reflect what we as people of faith believe that God will do in the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. So we're trying to wrestle with what it means to live out faith and follow God within the brokenness of this world. But what that means is that even by faith, however sincere our commitments to him are to follow him, we will still experience the fullness of this broken world. Those limitations have been assigned to each and to every one of us. And so we have to consider and wrestle with what does that mean and what is God doing in the midst of all of that and how do we honor him well in all of that? We see a glimpse of it in Mordecai who steps up to the plate when there's loss and there's tragedy and says, I will be to my niece what she needs when the people who can't be there for her, who would otherwise want to be there for her, are gone. He doesn't sit by and say, well, that's just tough. The world's broken. But in in some obedience, compassion, there is a willingness to accept responsibility in the midst of that brokenness to care for her. And we get a little bit of sense of also how he's dealing with the fact that she's caught up in this escapade because it says he's going to the palace every single day to check in on how she's doing and where she's at which isn't giving you the picture of someone just sitting back kind of indifferent, like, well, again, the world's broken, too bad for you, but no, no, no. (laughs) In love, in compassion, he wants to know and observe as much as possible 
what is going on. But that's the reality of our world. If we are not intentional about what we're doing and why we're doing it, things in this broken world won't naturally get better. They will naturally get worse. Right? So if you have a room in your house that you haven't opened the door for a couple years on, is your assumption that when you open the door, it will be better or worse? Your assumption is it's going to be worse. There might be something in that room. There might, there's going to be a whole lot of dust in that room. But I'm going to uncover just by time that things are worse and not better that we have to be proactive and intentional in our relationships. That's something that I uh, felt convicted about just two months ago um, when, as the church, we organized a marriage retreat. For both Amy and I, one of our takeaways was a conviction of the fact that I wasn't being as intentional in the discipleship of our children. And in part, this is how it worked. I said, well, because I am a pastor at a church... I don't want to come home and have Amy feel like the pastor just came home or the boys feel like the pastor just came. I want, like, I'm a husband and I'm a dad and I'm normal. So I did that so much that I admit I wasn't very intentional, therefore, in the specific discipleship of our boys. And they come home from most Sundays excited to say what they learned in Sunday school or when she was in BSF and they would get a lesson there, come home and say, and this is what I learned at BSF today. And I just sat there and said, that's absurd. They should be able to go somewhere and say, and this is what my dad taught me today. And I couldn't think of a long list of things that they could go somewhere and say, and this is what my dad taught me today. So I said, here, I'm going to try something simple, the Lord's Prayer. My two-year-old got it in two days. Which then was encouraging and discouraging. Because I was already like, so what if I would have been more intentional <laughs> over a longer period of time? But just letting things be <clears throat> does not lead to growth, to knowledge, to progress. The world we live in, because of its frustration, because of its futility, <clears throat> requires effort and intentionality, work to learn and to grow and to mature and to change over a period of time. But then as all of this is unfolding, her identity has been concealed, but she becomes queen in part because of that, and this feast is had, and we would almost then just assume that, you know, chapter 2 should just end at verse 18. And that's a good story. She went from this uncertain reality to now becoming the queen of this most powerful empire uh, in that day, in that time period. But it's not where it ends. We get this sort of aside, and it's one of the things that continues to happen throughout the book of Esther. There's this momentum and this flow where we think the story is going, and then all of a sudden something happens that just changes it. So in chapter 1, we were reading about this great gathering, all these people together, six months of celebration, then seven days of, of drunkenness and eating, and everyone's having a party, and then this just disruption of the queen refusing the king. And then we're like, oh, that's not where I thought this story was leading. And then here now, we're reading the story and how this girl goes from being a, an outsider with no rights, a minority, and an empire to becoming the queen of the empire... And then something happens that changes it. There, there's a switch in terms of the focus of the author of what our eyes should be on. So while she's been exalted to be queen, the very first thing that we learn is that the king's own life is in danger. That there are people who work in his palace who have a specific plan to assassinate him. And we're just like, 
It's not what we were led to sort of expect. Everyone was kind of together in this plan of having, having this way of choosing a new queen. Everyone was trying to make the king happy. And all of a sudden, there are two people that aren't trying to make the king happy. They have a specific plan and a specific plot to go after him. And it's in part because Esther is now where she is as the queen and because Mordecai has now access to the king through Esther that he overhears this and that he is able to tell her to go and tell the king that his life is in danger. And this becomes one of the themes throughout the book of Esther, that reversal is possible. That when everything feels like it's going a certain way and it almost seems predetermined and planned and there's nothing you can do to get out of it because it's so broken, some new bit of information or a new person comes in and we're moved in a different direction. That a reversal and a turning is possible, which is one of the few ways. It's concealed, it's subtle, but it's there that the book of Esther is, in fact, connecting itself to the language of the prophets, who said to all the people, there is one day when your mourning will be turned into laughter. There is going to be a day when there is a reversal, when there is a changing, when you who feel vulnerable will feel safe, when you who feel lost will be found. And the author's kind of preparing for us that even in the way the story itself unfolds, we don't know what that reversal will be a few chapters from now, but there's just this consistency now of I thought we were headed in one way and now we're going another way. I thought we were headed another way and now we're going another way. Uh, for me, just <clears throat> humorously, one of the ways that this happened for me yesterday, I participated in a local race, a steeplechase that was a fundraiser for the Bath Community Parks. And uh, Amy tried to make it at the end with the boys because <clears throat> they also have a bunch of playgrounds there. So I said, just come and you know we'll play together afterwards if you can make it to the end. And so we're playing and then about 20 minutes later, there's an award ceremony. So do you want to go over there? I mean, I'm not going to get anything, but we can go over there. If you want, no, the boys are playing. Let's just let them play. Sure enough, we're playing. And then after it's all over, Melody, who also ran in it, starts walking over to us, and she has a medal. And she comes up to me, and she says, you got a medal. You placed in your age group. What, are you kidding me? No. I'm like, you have to be playing a joke on me. No, they said your name, and so I went up, <clears throat> and I got it, and I thought I'd bring it to you whole time i'm like that just can't be right there is it was 87 degrees <clears throat> excuse me it was 87 degrees at 8 a.m i walked i think at least five or six times in the five mile race <laughs> and so i was like <clears throat> there's no way that this could be true and so later i finally get home and finally the results come out because i placed in my age group and they were giving out three or four prizes per age group there was only two prizes given away in my age group which means there was only two of us that ran in my age group. And I got second place. <clears throat> so I literally, in placing, still functionally got a participation medal and a last place medal. So that at least makes more sense. But in both of those things, it was this total reversal of, I don't need to go there. They're not going to, that, that part never applies to me to then, oh my goodness, does this apply to me? No, it doesn't apply to you. Not, no, not in any way. That's, that's what's happening throughout the book of Esther, this sense of you think you're headed in one way, but don't. And it's a lesson for us. We live in a broken world. 
Our own hearts are broken. And so we're constantly tempted from without and from within to say, this just doesn't matter. This can't change. There is no hope. There is no future. The darkness is going to win. There is no light. I mean, how, how can we believe that there is good in the world, that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth when we see all of these things that point in such a different direction throughout the world? And part of how the book of Esther is written for us is to encourage us in our faith that reversal is possible, that change is a reality, that God will do things that right now do not seem on the radar screen as even being potential or possible. Because the God who made us and put us in the world is also the God who still has that creative ability, and he is the one who can make all things new. He is the one who is not limited by the flow of events to say, well, I guess this is just going to how the ending is going to take place. But that he can add a chapter or an epilogue where the ending is different than we expected. And that's what we believe in. That's what we have faith in. And that's in part what the story of Esther is written to encourage us to consider. And so we'll continue it, those of you who are able to stay with us through the rest of the book. If you're not, I encourage you to read it. And then after reading it, to make Romans chapter 8 a great place to read through how God does that for every person in making them a son and a daughter of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of who you are and that at times when we can't discern directly what you're doing, where you yourself are concealed in the events that take place in our world, that we have reasons for hope, reasons for encouragement, that you are not limited or trapped by the things that limit us. We thank you that you are not like us, but that you are high and holy and that when we are weak, you are great, you are strong. And that what seems already destined to take place, that by you we can find hope and encouragement of a new beginning, of a change, of a different ending to so many of the stories that we see unfolding. And so we thank you for your grace and your love toward us and we sing to you now as our great God because you are to be greatly praised. Amen.